Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. This week on Babel, John speaks with Kim Ratas about the rivalry between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Then, John, Natasha, and I discuss the U.S. role in Saudi-Iranian competition. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Kim Ratas is a non-resident senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. She is the author of the recent book, Black Wave, Saudi Arabia, Iran, and the 40-year rivalry that unraveled culture, religion, and collective memory in the Middle East. I first met Kim when she was a BBC News correspondent. She's been a journalist for many years in Washington and the Middle East. Kim, welcome to Babel. Thank you very much for having me, John. Greetings from Beirut. Thank you very much. You talk about 1979 being a year in which the Middle East changed, and and you pointed to the takeover of the Grand Mosque in Mecca, the Iranian Revolution, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Why do you think all those things happened in one year? Was there a connection between them that, that sort of came to a head in 1979? There wasn't a connection per se between those three events, but they were happening at a time of the Cold War, the um, battle for influence between the US and the Soviet Union. But the three events were not actually directly connected, but they became intertwined because the confluence of these three events in one year is the reason why the Middle East changed so much in the following four decades and why we are where we are today. And to sum it up in a couple of lines, what this year did is turn Saudi Arabia, a Sunni country, and Iran, a Shia country, two countries that had been um, friends, allies, competitive, but not enemies. And when that happened, because Khomeini, upon his return from exile to Iran, as he turned the revolution from a very diverse, vibrant group of revolutionaries into a purely Islamic revolution, he started to want to vie for leadership of the Muslim world, something the Shah of Iran had never really wanted for himself. And that's how Khomeini started undermining the Saudi role as custodians of the two holy sites of Islam, making them feel in secure, and therefore they started to deploy religion as well as a soft power tool to counter the message that Iran and Khomeini were were spreading. And so these two countries suddenly start using religion, and they start exacerbating long dormant differences between Sunnis and Shias, and they unleash hell. One of the things I found surprising was that you didn't concentrate more on on the economics of the region and the fact that as oil prices rose in the 1970s, suddenly large oil exporters like Saudi Arabia and Iran had a lot of disposable cash, which they could use Mm -hmm. for regional influence. Why did you make the choice not to to talk a lot about the economics and to, to talk more about the religion? I mean, it's implicit because if they were suddenly able to deploy their power like this, especially the Saudis, it was because 
they had all this cash at their disposal. Certainly the Saudis, the Iranians, you know, had a rougher time and then they were uh, stuck in the Iran-Iraq war, which was devastating from a human perspective and from an economic perspective. And after 1979, it was mostly Saudi Arabia that could use the billions at its disposal to exert its soft power by building mosques and funding newspapers and schools and religious seminaries around the world, not just, not just the Middle East. The Iranians had less cash at their disposal and they already at the time used much more asymmetrical tools, including disrupting the pilgrimage to Mecca, the Hajj, and setting up you know, footholds elsewhere with you know, militias like Hezbollah, which they helped fund and, and start in Lebanon in the 80s. There's also, I think, both in, in Saudi Arabia and Iran, a, a turn away from cosmopolitanism. I'm sure you saw a lot of that growing up in Beirut, which was talked about as the Paris of the Middle East, the crossroads of many different cultures. As you know, I've spent a lot of time in Egypt, and it always seemed to me that the, the rise of parochialism and the decline of cosmopolitanism was partly linked to a class of difference that the old cosmopolitan elites were pushed aside economically and politically, they were pushed aside culturally as well. Is part of what we're seeing in the Middle East that you've described in this book a consequence of non-cosmopolitan elites coming to power in individual countries and trying to change it in addition to this sort of cold war between the Iranians and the Mm -hmm. Saudis? So the slow death of cosmopolitanism in the region precedes 1979, but it is accelerated by the events of 1979. Because, of course, you know, you had Gamal Abdel Nasser in in Egypt who started, you know, nationalizing the economy, expelling foreigners, large minority communities, you know, the Greeks, the Italians, uh, the Jews, uh, etc. So that happened before 1979. It happened in Iraq as well, a little bit, although Iraq was on a different trajectory with, uh, with the Ba'ath Party. And it began to accelerate a little bit more after the defeat of 1967 during the Six-Day War between the Arabs and, and Israel. There was a sense that if nationalism wasn't going to help the Arabs win a war against Israel, perhaps religion could help. Perhaps it was time to uh, have a return to, to God and more conservative values. And so you started seeing a return to conservative values then, but it was still one of many trends and it still was itself cosmopolitan. But what 1979 does is really turn this pigot open on funding of conservative movements because Iran by 1979 is exporting a very radical understanding of Shiaism that is also puritanical and very conservative. And that in essence is, is, if Khomeini wasn't so opposed to the Saudis, he could have gotten along with them because that's how the Saudis initially saw him, right? They saw this conservative man who spoke their language initially. That's how they first viewed Khomeini. And then they realized that he had uh, designs uh, of his own as leader of the Muslim world. So the transformation in Iran is quite radical from before the Shah to after the Shah. In Saudi Arabia, it's a lot more subtle because Saudi Arabia is already a very conservative country under the Al Sauds. And the Al Sauds themselves have started to erase the cosmopolitanism that existed in the Arabian Peninsula, especially in 
the Hejaz province on the Red Sea, where you have Mecca and Medina. And after Jeddah, 1979, of course, and Jeddah, yes, absolutely. And after 1979, they unleashed this torrent of money within their country to empower the religious police even further, and then they start spreading it abroad. But you raise a very good question about the death of cosmopolitanism. It cannot exist under you know, radicalism of the sort that the Iranian regime today wants to impose or the understanding of Saudi Arabia and, you know, literalist Islam. It doesn't allow for diversity, even though people keep pushing against the boundaries, both in Iran and in Saudi Arabia. What do you think the governments of Saudi Arabia and Iran want now? I understand that there might have been a revolutionary impulse 40 years ago, the Saudis felt threatened. But as we look now, what do you think these governments are really looking to do? It's a very interesting question at this point in time, because the leadership in Saudi Arabia is very interesting under Mohammed bin Salman. It's a different approach to foreign policy, to domestic policy. And I think Mohammed bin Salman is a lot more feisty, a lot more militaristic, a lot more gung-ho about breaking away from the compromise-style ruling that the al Saudis have had so far. He wants to be a little bit like the Iranians, a little bit like Qasem Soleimani before, before he was killed. And you have this great quote in your book, this is what MBS wanted, something the kingdom had never quite managed to attain, despite the billions of dollars it had spent over decades to buy friends, something the revolutionary Iran had mastered with strategy and thuggery. He wanted to be respected and feared. Yeah, absolutely. That's something that the Iranian regime has been very good at over the last 40 years. You can dislike their policies, you can dislike their worldview, you can criticize them all you want, but they're quite strategic. I'm not saying they're omnipotent and perfect, but they're quite strategic. And I think that for the Iranians, it's about having a sphere of influence in the region that uh, overlaps with their sort of Persian nationalism and that allows them to uh, stand up to America, the imperial West, and by extension, stand up to Saudi Arabia and try to eat away at Saudi Arabia's own sphere of influence. And I have to say that they've been quite successful because Iraq, it's, it's kind of true when Iranian officials say that Iraq, Iran, Lebanon, and uh, Yemen are very much in, not under Iranian control, but very much under their sphere of influence. And that's something that was Saudi Arabia's to lose, and they lost it. So what do you think Mohammed bin Salman is really trying to do? He would like to, first of all, avoid full-on war with Iran. I don't think that we need to worry that that is his intention, to go to war with Iran. There could be mistakes, but you saw at the end of last year when the Abqaiq oil facility was attacked, and then when Qasem Soleimani was killed in January, the Saudis very quietly behind uh, closed doors, behind the scene, very quietly rushed to calm things down because they did not want an, an all-out conflagration. I don't think they even want an all-out war between the US and Iran. So Mohammed bin Salman would like to avoid an all-out war, but he would like to contain Iran as much as possible with help from his friends, and that includes Israel at the moment, and he would like to exert his influence and possibly, possibly 
try to regain a better foothold in countries like Iraq and Lebanon and Yemen. Although that requires strategic thinking and capacity within the ruling circles of you know, Saudi Arabia and its foreign ministry that I don't think they're, they quite have yet. And the other thing that Saudi Arabia wants, I think, is to remain America's friend in opposition to Iran. I mean, in, I, I always say that the Saudis kind of need the Iranians to be America's enemy so that Saudi Arabia can remain America's friend forever. But they're going to have a rough time on all these fronts because of you know, the COVID-19 crisis, the drop in oil prices, and the potential of a Democratic president in the White House in November who's going to be a lot less forgiving about their behavior. What do you think Mohammed bin Salman has learned over the last five years? And what do you think the Iranians have learned over the last five years? The Iranians have been learning for the last 40 years. Uh, I think they, as I said, they play the chess game very, very carefully. I don't want to make them sound, uh, you know, all, all powerful. They benefit a lot from their opponents' mistakes. But I think they have learned that they can get away with a lot while the U.S. is retreating from the region. And that retreat started under President Obama. What I'm saying is that when you want to disengage from the Middle East, you need to make sure that you've checked the whole chessboard. And I don't think President Obama did that. I think that he could get to a deal with the Iranians, pocket that, and then see how you know, things would unfold. But he did not take into consideration the rest of the chessboard, which was that the Iranian regime was gaining an influence in Syria, uh, helping Assad, that the Saudis were freaking out about this nuclear deal, and that therefore they became very belligerent and went to war in Yemen. And the 2013 red line episode showed that the United States was not willing to step in to counter others filling the vacuum, like Russia and like Iran. And, and what have the Saudis learned from all of this, do you think? You know, I'm not sure, because uh, Mohammed bin Salman has been on the rise since 2015. So that is five years, but he's been on an interesting learning curve. One of the things that he has learned is he's eaten a little bit of humble pie, because he thought that he could, you know, waltz into Yemen and end this in, you know, five seconds. And five years later, we're still at it. And it's a humanitarian disaster that is also a stain on Saudi Arabia's conscience, just the way that Syria should be a stain on Iran's or the Iranian regime's conscience. It's not that easy to go to war and, you know, have a success. As George and W. That, Bush can tell you from his Iraq experience. Absolutely. Absolutely. And many others. I mean, the Israelis and, and Hezbollah. And I think the other thing he has learned or that he came knowing when he came to power, he wanted to make sure that Saudi Arabia would not be fooled again by the smiles of Iranian moderates. His view is very much that during the years of rapprochement, during the 90s, for example, between Saudi Arabia and Iran, the Saudis were fooled by the smiles of Rafsanjani and, and Khatami, and that while they were all nice and talking about diplomacy and signing security agreements, the Revolutionary Guards were still very busy carrying out this expansionist policy. And the nuclear program of Iran 
was expanding at the same time. And Mohammed bin Salman thinks that that was a terrible mistake and he is not going to get caught doing that again, compromising with the Iranians just because they're, they're smiling at him. And that is in a way a smart lesson, but it's also a dangerous one for the region because it means that you have an uncompromising leadership in Iran and an uncompromising leadership in Saudi Arabia. The good thing is that the Saudis don't want a full-on war, as I said. As a final question, you covered the Clinton State Department closely. You wrote a book on Secretary Clinton. You thought a lot about U.S. foreign policy. You've done a book about the last 40 years in the Middle East. It's easy when you're following the State Department to think that everything matters and all the decisions are consequential and there are a lot of small things The only things thing that, that matters is the Middle East and Lebanon. That's all that matters. Beirut. Uh, it's all about Beirut. No, it's all about Beirut. <laughs> In your book, The Black Wave, the United States isn't the driver of many of these trends and it's often unable to shape or redirect them. Have we given too much credence to the small decisions the U.S. makes or are there kinds of decisions where the U.S. has more impact and, and certain kinds of decisions that people focus on and talk about, but they end up not being very consequential in the region. I love to quote uh, Jake Sullivan, who was with Clinton at the State Department, yes. Deputy Chief of Staff, Director of Policy Planning, then uh, in the White House with, with Biden. He told me when I, when I said, you know, how, how does American foreign policy get made? And I was writing the first book, The Secretary. He said, look, it's thought through and carried out by you know, fallible human beings who are trying to do the best with what they have at hand. And that's not to dismiss the power of the United States and its might and its intelligence and military and everything. But at the end of the day, it is about human beings and human beings make mistakes and they don't know everything. And we have this impression that the, in Lebanon and the Middle East and elsewhere, I mean, in India, in Pakistan, in Latin America, that if the United States decides something, it shall be. But even during the golden age, if you will, of America as a, you know, almost sole superpower during the 90s under Bill Clinton, Madeleine Albright wrote about how difficult it was to get their allies to get to do anything they were telling them to do. So it's not that easy. And I get that. But the United States has the power to make things happen in a way that is different from China or Russia. When it comes to my book, Black Wave, and why I don't focus so much on the United States' actions, it's not because they're inconsequential or because the United States is not a driver of the events. It is there at every turn. And sometimes it succeeds at pushing things in one direction or another, and sometimes it fails. But what I wanted to achieve with this book was to show the power that regional players had as well, Saudi Arabia and Iran, in driving the action and in sometimes driving American action and in sometimes playing America. I mean, I think the Saudis play America often and a lot and in their own way, so do the Iranians. But it's too easy for everyone in the region and elsewhere to always say, oh, it's America's fault. A lot of it is, but Iran and Saudi Arabia should take responsibility for their actions too, because they're not pawns. They are regional, big, powerful players. Even Iran, under sanctions, is a powerful regional player. Kim Ratas, thank you very much for joining us. It's great to be on the show. Thanks so much, John. Next up, John, Natasha, and I discuss how the U.S. factors into the Saudi-Iranian relationship. 
We're changing things up a little this week on Babbel. Normally, Will Todman joins us for our conversations, but this week we have our new senior fellow, Natasha Hall. Natasha, welcome to Babbel. Thanks for having me, McKinley. And I'm delighted Natasha joined us. She has spent a lot of time on the ground in the Middle East, working with people in the Middle East. Uh, the conversations we've been having have been tremendous, and I think she's going to lead us into a whole bunch of interesting uh, directions. And I think talking today about where the U.S. fits into the trajectory of the Middle East is perfect because Natasha is both an American, but somebody who has been in the Middle East watching American foreign policy play out for the last several years. So Natasha, I'm so delighted you're with us. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks, John, for having me. So John, you and Kim talked about how 1979 was a year that really kicked off three big events that changed the culture and society of the Middle East. And Kim talked about how they were occurring during the Cold War, where the U.S. and the Soviet Union were fighting for influence in the region. How did the U.S. play a role in the Saudi-Iranian relationship during the Cold War? The United States had formed alliances with both Iran and Saudi Arabia as part of its Cold War effort to keep the Soviets out of the Gulf, to keep the Soviets away from uh, the energy supplies in the Gulf. That strategy sort of collapsed in part because of a, a sense of threat that came out of the, the Arab oil embargo in 1973, and then more profoundly because of the fall of the Shah in 1979, which meant that this twin pillars strategy of, of helping both the Arab side of the Gulf and the Persian side of the Gulf work together to keep the Soviets out. I remember that year very well. I was a, a freshman in high school, and the sense that a lot of people had was either that this was good, that this was a democratic revolution in Iran, or that this was just a passing phase that the fundamental goodness of the Iranians would immediately come roaring back and the Ayatollahs wouldn't last for more than a few months. There had been a lot of American business in Iran, a lot of sense that we really knew the country. And there was really a sense that this was all transient. What Kim talks about in her book is that these two events, the takeover of the Grand Mosque in Mecca in particular, and the fall of the Shah and the rise of the Islamic Republic in Iran, kicked off a dynamic which wasn't about the United States, but which rendered the previous U.S. approach to the region completely inoperable. Yeah, I mean, I remember this era not as well, perhaps, but I was born around this time. Uh, and going back to the Middle East as an Arab American uh, for family visits, I witnessed sort of the increasing conservative nature of the region uh, as I grew up as well. So I, I had I had similar questions, but I think from the Middle Eastern perspective, there was a lot to be said for the U.S. role that was played in all of this that added to the perhaps even the popularity of the Islamic Republic that was not warranted, um, but also the, the U.S. support of the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, which uh, Kim also discusses in her book, and Saudi Arabia's also role in propping up the Mujahideen uh, during the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. So I, I think that um, the United States, while perhaps not always directly, I think it did have an indirect role in some of these pivotal moments that she talks about in 1979, including its role in propping up the Shah. So what about in the decades after that, John, you talked about the, a need for a shift in policy. 
What was the new U.S. role? Well, the United States, in many ways, deepened its ties on the Arab side of the Gulf, partly to combat the Iranians on the Persian side of the Gulf. And the U.S. got increasingly involved. The, the, the strategy that the Arab states had was part of containing the Islamic Republic was supporting Saddam Hussein. That seemed like a reasonable bet until Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait in 1990, leading to the Gulf War in 1991. But the U.S. was actually interested in the idea of normalizing its relationship with Iraq under Saddam Hussein as an additional way to hem the Iranians in. In many ways, the story of Iran in the region has an important thread that runs through it of a U.S.-Iranian competition where the U.S. continues to try to pressure the Iranians. Yeah, and I think that Kim discusses this quite in detail during your interview, but also in the book, that Saudi Arabia, with all of its funds, with all of its oil wealth, was not able to accomplish quite the level of influence that Iran has been able to with its very loyal proxy militias throughout the Middle East in Lebanon. And now you have deep, deep economic ties with Iraq, as well as their, their militias as well. And you see this sort of Arab Spring 2.0 that's both in Iraq, but also in Lebanon and other countries. And a lot of it is protesting this Iranian influence within their countries and all of the consequences that have fallen out from that. Natasha, so you just said that it's only been more recently that people are starting to rise up against that. How does that or should that affect the U.S. role? Well, I think that it's not a black and white. As Kim mentioned, you know, this is not a quick fix. You can't snap your fingers. But I do think that the United States can play a more constructive role in providing mutual security around the region. I mean, I think it was the Roman philosopher that's uh, Seneca that said all cruelty springs from weakness. And I would argue it springs from insecurity, too, on behalf of Saudi Arabia and Iran. And you've seen these um, these moments in time where both parties want to de-escalate tensions. You saw this after the attack on the oil facility in Saudi Arabia last year, where MBS uh, of Saudi Arabia quickly wanted to de-escalate the situation, actually, and reached out to the prime minister of Iraq and to Imran Khan of, of Pakistan to reach out to Iran to do so. But you had no response from the United States. And I'm not suggesting that there should have been a military response, but I think a smart administration would have intervened and seen a sort of a prime opportunity to create at least a level of confidence building or even conciliatory talks between two adversaries that could go a long way, at least in the future, perhaps not the near future, but the future, to sort of reconstructing this relationship for the benefit of the region. But at the same time, it seems to me that the U.S. becomes part of the background noise and the fundamental rivalry between Iran and, and Saudi Arabia in many ways is larger than something the U.S. can profoundly change. It can manage it a little bit. It can try to lead the parties toward something better. I think you've had previous administrations who tried to do it. But the sense that, that the solution can be found in U.S. policy, I think, is a misplaced hope. Yeah, and I think that was essentially Kim's point in writing the book. 
for us to better understand the culpability of regional players in the trajectory of the Middle East and what happens culturally, socially, and geopolitically. She mentions MBS ate humble pie. I think that U.S. administrations, uh, from especially from George W. Bush on, have also been humbled by what they can possibly accomplish in the Middle East. But I also believe, as Kim mentioned, that the United States needs to maintain a comprehensive assessment of the chessboard and who will come in to fill those gaps when they are not there to provide support for allies or to stand up to dictators in the case of the of the Arab uprisings throughout the Middle East. Natasha, you just mentioned that some of the past administrations have been humbled a little bit. What should some of the lessons learned be for the next administration? Should expectations be tempered a little bit about what the U.S. role can actually be? Or should the U.S. role be larger? What, what is your takeaway? I believe that U.S. administrations, and this is uh, both parties, I think they sometimes overlearn uh, from past mistakes. So I think that in the case of the Obama administration, for example, it saw you know the wars raging in Iraq and Afghanistan and really no end in sight, definitely not for the benefit of U.S. national security, certainly. And then, you know, the disaster that is that is currently Libya. And I think that uh, when looking at Syria and, and other countries that were experiencing revolutions, I think that unfortunately, as Kim kind of mentioned, there was this mixed bag of different policies rather than a strategy that tried to intertwine interests and principles. And I think that that's difficult for a United States or any democracy because there will always be a change in administration. And so it's, I think it's always been difficult for the U.S. to form a real strategy towards all of the countries in the Middle East that isn't just about full support of Israel and keeping oil prices down. And I think that perhaps now more than ever before is the time to, to rethink that strategy so I think that being more diplomatically involved would certainly be a start, because right now it seems that we have more of a hands-off strategy with uh, occasional sort of dramatic acts like the assassination of Qasem Soleimani earlier this year. Just to pick up on one of the ideas that Kim expressed in the interview and she talks about in the book, you know, there's often a failure of imagination in the U.S. government about what will happen if we do something, what will happen if we don't do something? There's a strong bias toward what we want to have happen and what are the things we need to do to make it happen. But there's not really a sense of how people are likely to respond. And I also think having been in the Middle East for, for much of my adult life and my career, I really assumed that the people in the Middle East were sort of tired of U.S. involvement and influence. But when the Arab Spring happened and President Obama stood up for, for the people of Egypt and for the people of Syria and other countries that were rising up against uh, long-term dictators, I realized that there was still perhaps a place for the United States to have a positive influence in the Middle East. And I was quite surprised, actually, having worked on the, the Syrian conflict in particular for the past 10 years that so many within the country still wanted support from the United States and looked to the United States for support, where unfortunately it didn't, it didn't get everything that it wanted or needed. But I think that 
while there is a limited level of, of influence that the United States can now have in the Middle East, I think that if it's a, if it's a positive or a constructive influence for mutual security and for, you know, just basic justice and rights for people on the ground, I think that that is welcomed and perhaps could even be in U.S. national security interests. In the broader picture, I think you're going to see a diminished U.S. footprint in the Middle East going forward. It partly has to do with the way the U.S. gets its energy, the way the world gets its energy. It partly has to do with the sense that constantly fighting counterterrorism battles in the region can't be the preoccupation of the U.S. military. But I don't think there's been nearly enough consideration of what an alternative strategy is, how other people in the region will react, how other great powers will react, and how this is going to play out over the next 10, 20, 30 years. We need to be having that conversation now. We're not having it. And I think in many ways, this is the opportunity we have that Kim's book highlights, is there is a dynamic, the U.S. plays a role in that dynamic. There's a dynamic that is, is sort of larger than the United States. And it's an opportunity to rethink what our role is, what we should be committed to, and what we can afford to let go of. And I think in many ways, Kim's book is a wake-up call to having a much more upfront conversation, both about what's happening despite us, what's happening because of us, and what we should be trying to do as a country to serve our interests. Thank you both for joining us on this week's episode, especially you, Natasha. It was great to have you. There'll be no Meze episode next week, but tune back in the week after that for the newest episode of Babel. Thanks for listening to Babel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSIS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast.